0: Luke chapter 19, page 1053, if you're using the Pew Bibles. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we come to your word. We're ready to listen to your voice. Lord, there, there are times for many of us who have grown up in the church who are familiar with your word when we Uh, say to ourselves, I I know this, I've heard this before, Uh, and we imagine that there's nothing new for us or nothing that you would say to us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts. We pray that you would give us uh, fresh eyes and keen ears this morning as we look and listen to your word. Amen. Okay, so why this parable? As I listened back to our services over the last three weeks being away, I noticed that Frank and Neil and Stuart all did this exercise briefly at the start of their preaching. They asked the question, why is Jesus preaching this parable? On each occasion, they looked at the context in Luke's gospel. They tried to work out why Jesus had chosen to preach this particular parable to these particular people at this particular moment in time on this particular occasion here in Luke 19 Luke makes it easy for us he tells us in the opening verse of our passage verse 11 he says that Jesus taught this parable because people thought that the kingdom of heaven was going to appear at once Jesus tells this parable to correct their thinking It wasn't unusual for people in Jesus' time to be thinking about the coming of the kingdom. When is that going to happen? That was a natural thing because Jesus talked so much about the kingdom and in such vivid terms, it was a natural thing for a person to say, well, well, when? What's the time frame? In Matthew 24, when Jesus was talking about the time when he would return again and bring the fullness of the kingdom, he said this, About that hour and day, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. When's Jesus finally going to bring the kingdom in its fullest form? God only knows. We certainly don't. So Jesus wasn't interested in this moment in telling his audience about when the kingdom was going to come rather he was telling them how they should live in light of the future coming kingdom so why this parable it's a parable about how we should live as we wait for the coming of the kingdom of god it's a very simple story look at verse 12 man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Let me throw a few questions just to check that we've understood this. Who's the man of noble birth who's going to a distant country to be appointed king and then to return? Who do you think Jesus might be talking about? that's right Jesus is talking about himself Jesus is going to make just this journey that he's describing it's it's already happening in the narrative of Luke's gospel have have a look at the next title in Luke's gospel Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king Jesus is going to to go to the city of Jerusalem he's going to be crucified he's going to rise again Some weeks later, he'll ascend to his father's side where he will be crowned and enthroned. Make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ is the king. He's the king of all kings. And one day, he's telling us he will return and he'll bring the fullness of the kingdom. Jesus is talking about himself. Who are the servants? in this story well they're his people they're actually all people we'll see that as the story unfolds every man woman boy and girl who lives ever has lived ever will live every human being is subject to king jesus or by rights should be every person's life is measured by their response to the king What are the 10 minas that we were talking about in verse 13? Well, the footnote tells us that a mina is a sum of money. It's equal to three months wages. I'm a, a figures kind of a guy, so I did a quick calculation based on minimum wage. I think we're talking about five grand. It's a decent chunk of money. And last question, what are the servants to do with this money? The man of noble birth couldn't be clearer. He says, put the money to work until I come back. It's an investment fund. The king wants his servants to invest the resources that he's given them for his sake. As I said a moment ago, it's a really simple story. Jesus wants his audience to understand that that he's placed a calling on them. He wants them to live in anticipation of the coming kingdom, and he's given them opportunities to invest in the work of the kingdom. And he's going to leave them now to get on with it. But he's promised that one day he will return. One day he'll settle accounts with his followers, his investment managers. One last question. If that's what Jesus said to his disciples then, how, how does this sit with us now? Well, Since Jesus Christ has not yet returned, since he's not yet brought the fullness of the kingdom, we live in this same time frame, in this period of investment. The opportunity that Jesus shared with his first followers is the same opportunity that's open to us now. We're his followers, granted resources, ready to invest now in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' message. In his story, Jesus describes three different responses to this nobleman's command on the part of his servants. We find the first on one extreme, verse 14. We read that his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. The thing you'll notice if you look at the passage as a whole, Jesus doesn't really dwell on this moves on very quickly doesn't say much about it one of the reasons why that might be uh, the scholars reckon that Jesus maybe told this story in such a way as to prompt people's minds to a real life event that had happened not long before just a few years before after the death of Herod the Great his own son Archelaus went to Rome and he went to ask Augustus Caesar to make him king over Judea but Herod the Great's dynasty was so unpopular that the, the Jewish people sent a delegation of 50 people, 50 senior men to Rome to oppose this appointment. Jesus' story might, might be intended to echo these events. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that some people are simply opposed to to his rule and reign. Some people don't want Jesus interfering in their lives and Jesus knows that. He's not naive to that reality. It's been a recurring theme throughout these parables. Think about it. Some people are simply hard ground. The seed of the word never penetrates others are unwilling guests although the kings invited them to a great banquet they don't want to come some worship money instead of god they're like the the rich man in the parable in chapter 16 some are self-righteous like the elder son and the pharisee in the temple people reject jesus christ it was so when he walked on earth It's been so throughout history, and it is so today. Tell me this. Are you conscious that you're somehow still keeping Jesus Christ at a distance, rejecting him? As I've said, Jesus doesn't say much about these enemies of his, but what he does say is sobering. Look at the the verse at the end of the passage, verse 27. When he's judging each person according to their response to him, he said, those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's That's a very harsh ending to a story, isn't it? To be honest, I'd prefer it if if that verse wasn't in our passage if the story didn't end this way but Jesus insists that the story ends this way he's included this ending to make it clear that there can be no room in the kingdom of God for people who are rebels against that kingdom the kingdom will only ever be populated by people who want to be there who want to live under Jesus' rule If I don't want Jesus as king, I can't have a place in his kingdom. If I don't want to submit my life to the author and giver of life, then I am inevitably choosing and entering into death. Sobering. Incredibly sobering. I encourage you, if you haven't yet submitted to King Jesus, that you take this warning to heart. That's a first response to the master who gave his minas to his ten servants. We read about a second very different kind of response to Jesus' investment opportunity, verses 16 to 19. One guy takes his mina and he earns ten more with it. I wish I wish this guy was my banker. I wish I was getting that kind of interest. Thousand percent interest. The, the next guy that we read about uses his mina to earn five more, five hundred percent return. In verse 17, we see that the king's pleased with these servants. They've put their master's money to work and they've made the most of the investment opportunity. Jesus is simply using a financial metaphor here to talk about the kind of trustworthiness that God is looking for in good and faithful servants. He wants his people to take steps, to be creative and enterprising. He wants spirit-filled entrepreneurs investing dynamically in the kingdom of God. Folks, this is well worth thinking about. And this is where this passage, I think, might surprise us. To listen to some Christians today, you'd think that Christian faithfulness is only and always about standing firm, holding orthodox beliefs, and being some sort of defender of the faith. That's a really important aspect of Christian faithfulness and one that we'll need to continue to to nurture and grow in in the days ahead. But according to Jesus there's a dynamism to the life of faith that's easily lost on us if we think only in those terms. Faithfulness according to Jesus is about as accomplishing as much as possible for the kingdom of God with the resources and talents that we've been given. Jerry Marshall, General Manager of Transformational Business Network, he talks about a time when he was presenting to an entrepreneurial, on entrepreneurial leadership to a secular group. And he was asked an interesting question during the Q&A. They knew that he was a Christian. So the question was this. Does your faith mean that you take more risks? That's an interesting question. Do Christians take more risks or less than other similar people. He said my answer was a resounding yes for two reasons. First, I have a great boss. God is always there encouraging and stretching me even when I make a mistake. I know that he still loves me and supports me and that he travels with me from wherever I've fallen. Second, when I finally head home, I know that my future is secure. The mansion cannot be repossessed. For the good and faithful servants in Jesus' parable, as for Jerry Marshall, God's business is sometimes risky business and they're willing to trust him and to get on with it. Unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. There's a third kind of a response to to the investment opportunity Jesus is talking about. Verse 20, have a look. A servant who seems willing to accept the king, he's not like the first group who've said, I won't be living under your rule. He's willing to accept the king, but not the investment opportunity. When he appears before the king, he, he simply says, there it is. There's your mina. You can have it back he's taken the money that he was given, he's wrapped it in a hanky, he's put it in a biscuit tin, he's buried it at the bottom of the garden. I was afraid of you. Sums up his excuse. Did you see that? Afraid that he might not succeed, afraid that he might fail, afraid of the boss. A traveller in the southern United States one time stopped into a small village and he got into conversation with a local farmer who he noticed was sitting with his feet up on the veranda of his home. How's your cotton coming on? The farmer asked, or or the traveller asked. Ain't got none, said the farmer. Did you plant any? No, said the farmer, afraid of the cotton beetle. How's your corn then, the traveller asked. Didn't plant none, afraid there wasn't going to be any rain. Well, what about your potatoes then? Ain't got none, said the farmer, afraid of the potato blight. Well, what what did you plant this year then? Nothing. This year I figured I'd just play it safe. no planting, no crop, no investment, no reward. This was the third servant's policy. He figured he'd just play it safe. He says that he's afraid of the master. See the point Jesus is making with this story about investment opportunities in the kingdom of God? Jesus expects his servants to give our best energy and our creativity and to use the resources that he's entrusted to us. He expects us to show enterprise as we face the opportunities he's given us. Jesus expects us to take risks. And by way of the example of this wicked, lazy servant, he, he warns us against passivity, against playing it safe, He's encouraging us to have enough enough confidence in God to believe that he won't treat us badly if we make a genuine mistake and are investing here and there. Friends, I'm going to say that more than many other parables, this one caused me to rethink some of my most deeply held convictions. It challenged me to rethink what I think about God and what I rethink what I think about what he's called me to do as I live my life first of all let me tell you how it challenged my assumption about God Here, here's a dearly held assumption that I carried for I think most of my life I'd never heard it stated explicitly I'd never heard it articulated and I certainly never articulated it this way myself, but still it was there, an assumption that I simply picked up along the way. It went something like this. God knows everything, so he doesn't like it if I make wrong choices. God is all-powerful, therefore he doesn't like it if I try things and fail. God is perfect and pure, so he gets frustrated when his people make mistakes. I suppose I'd come to assume that God is is like so many of us in this modern world, that he's he's risk-averse, that God's conservative, and that he wants his people to be risk-averse and conservative. As I've been rereading this parable, I've been learning that my deep-rooted assumption about God is wrong. God is not who I thought he was. It turns out that God is not conservative on these things after all. This parable hasn't only challenged some of my most deeply held views of God, but it's also challenged my beliefs about how he wants me to live. It turns out that he's not honored by risk-averse behavior, by an overly fearful approach to life. In fact, Jesus' parable, it turns out that these things make him angry god wants His people to trust him to be entrepreneurial to take steps for the kingdom one commentator expressed it like this some of us who are conservative theologically also tend to be conservative in every other way we're happy to attend church every week and to feel secure and cozy in the company of our christian friends Any exposure to the world, that nasty, wicked place, makes us feel decidedly uneasy. So we stay on the sidelines as spectators of the enterprise of others. Friends, I've always considered myself theologically conservative. If we mean by that, committed to the God who's revealed himself in Scripture and in Jesus Christ... But this parable has taught me something really interesting about what it means to be truly theologically conservative. If I am to be theologically and biblically conservative, then I must live a radical life. I must live a radical risk-taking life in the kingdom of God. A biblical Christian is an adventurous and an enterprising Christian. No other interpretation makes sense of the sacrificial life and death of Jesus Christ, of the life of the likes of Paul and of the explosion of the early church recorded for us in the New Testament, and the countless movements of God's gracious renewal throughout the history of the church. God calls his people to adventurous engagement for the sake of the gospel. A number of years ago, I read an article in PCI's Reach Out magazine and there was a contributor there who was tackling this issue of the risk-averse church. He spoke of the many times in church and ministry life where we may be missing out on the fullness of God's blessing because we don't take the risks of faith he asks of us. The result, says the writer, is a spirituality that is safe, mission that's well within the confines of one's comfort zone, and congregational life, which is boring, predictable, and so much less than God desires. In this parable, Jesus is calling disciples to show courage in our life with God. I wonder, are you ready to grow as a risk-taking disciple? Just this week, I was chatting to another member in the church. We were talking about some ministry uh, that we were thinking of together. Uh, And as we were chatting, this person said to me, I feel like I've been limiting what God could do in this ministry by my actions, by how I'm doing it. And I said, goodness, I do that all the time. And we said, well, why don't we, why don't we do less of that? Why don't we take more steps and show more courage in the life of the kingdom? How, how could we do that? What, what am I talking about? I'm not talking about doing crazy, un, unimaginably difficult things. I'm just talking about showing some courage we can start with small things. We could invite a person to come to church with us. That's something all of us have within our reach to do. I remember seeing a statistic one time not so long ago that a third of people, around about a third of people, if you invite them to church, will come. All right? I find that really interesting. That means if I approach a random bunch of people, the first person I ask might not come. There's a risk But I don't have to ask a thousand before one person's going to come. Do you see what I mean? We we have Satan does this thing where he tells us that nothing is possible. God's not doing anything in the world. The truth is, often we're just not taking steps. let's let's consider whether there's somebody a member of our family a friend somebody could could we invite them to church or or somebody somewhere where they'd encounter Jesus Christ so there's a question for each one of us to take home this week who's following Jesus what step am I going to take today what what thing that I've I've hesitated to do because I felt afraid what thing could I do what step could I take I wonder whether this passage might be inviting a corporate response too. I wonder whether this church is ready to grow as a risk-taking church. Are we ready ready to go on an adventure together to create a corporate identity that's about taking steps for the glory of God in these times in which we live? Or are we going to be so preoccupied with never getting anything wrong that will pass up endless opportunities to get things right. I wonder what risks we're going to take as a church family in these next 12 months. What steps will we take to cultivate a a deeper joy and a freedom in our prayer lives, in our spirituality? How are we increasingly going to open our lives to each other? That, That takes risk. That's why we don't do it. Is God calling us to do a little more of that how are we going to encourage more people in our church to use their gifts you know if if we ask them to do something they might not be fantastic it's a risk but maybe we could learn to do it how will we increasingly open our lives to to each other and open our doors to people who aren't yet here what steps are we going to take to get out of these doors and into this city where God has placed us In this story, Jesus has talked about resources. It's a financial story. It's about these minas. I wonder if it's ever dawned on you that here at Hamilton Road Presbyterian Church, we have a disproportionately large amount of God's resources. Has that ever occurred to you? We have more people and more property and more pounds than than almost, you know, than than a huge proportion of the, the church worldwide. What are we doing with what God has given us? How are we using what we've been given for the kingdom of God? So there's a question for our church family, maybe for our leaders in particular. What steps are we going to take this week, this month, to invest dynamically in the kingdom of God? look shell-shocked this parable is about how we're going to live in the kingdom until the king returns it contains a quite breathtaking invitation i want to leave you with this have a look verse 17 what is it the king says to his entrepreneurial enterprising subjects well done my good servant can you even imagine that I think we need to slow down for a second can you imagine the living God looking on you and saying well done I hope you can. Because Jesus said that's what what he wants. That's what he wants to be saying. He looks at how you've invested not only your money, but your time, your energy, your house, your car, all those other resources that he's given you. Picture the moment. You. And he says, well done. Good and faithful, servant." all your failings and all your failures would become irrelevant. Your mistakes forgotten every bit as much as your sins forgiven because you've done the thing that you were created for. To invest your life in the kingdom of God. To bring glory to the king. Let's go and let's do it. And let's pray, let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have failed to live the dynamic life that Jesus calls us to. Forgive us for the times when we've been like the servant who was afraid. Somehow we've got it in our heads that if we did things for you and failed, you'd be cross with us. Lord, in in your word, you've told us that that's simply not the case. Lord, when we seek your will, when we follow your lead, when we take steps, whether we succeed or fail, Lord, we will bring joy to your heart. Help us to see that. And Lord, I pray that what we've heard in your word today might bear fruit in our lives, in our, in our individual lives, but also in the life of our church family. Help us to be a community that will one day hear your words. Well done, my good servant. Amen. let's sing a song together that's really a, a prayer inviting for God to to bring the kingdom and, and inviting him to use us. Let your kingdom come. Let's stand as we sing.